Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And today we're doing a little bit of a different episode. It's still a roundtable, but it's going to be a long, chunky episode. (laughs) I am here. I am joined by our legislative team, and we are going to go over the entire 82nd legislative session. You know, from all the bills, all the dynamics, we're going to try and cover all of it. Obviously, we're not going to talk about every single bill that passed, but we're going to try and talk about a lot of them, especially the big ones that you should be paying attention to here in Nevada. And so I am joined by Sean Galanka, Tabitha Mueller, and Jacob Solis. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Good to be here, Joey. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Joey. Quick correction, Joey. You're welcome for having you. You are at our home right now. <laughs> yes, I I am sitting on your couch. We are all together. We don't get to do this very often. It's nice. It's nice to be together to record this podcast. Just one big happy family, Joey. That's right. One big, tired, exhausted, happy family. We are looking at a long list of things to get through, so we got to start with that right away. But in the middle of this, Breaking news is probably going to happen, so we'll deal with that when we get to it. But so to start off, I just want to lay out the dynamics of the session a little bit. We had all new leadership in this session except for the Senate Majority Leader, which was Nicole Cannizzaro. But other than that, in the Assembly, both on the Democrats and the Republicans, we had new leaders, with Steve Yeager being the Speaker of the Assembly and P.K. O'Neill being the Minority Leader in the Assembly for the Republicans. And then Nicole Cannizzaro, the only returning leadership in the Senate, and Heidi Sievers-Gansert as the minority leader in the Senate, as well as a new governor, Joe Lombardo. And so with all of that, how did that kind of shift dynamics, you guys? I think that one of the things that we saw in terms of those shifted dynamics is that, first off, it's important to note that Democrats had a supermajority, right? So anything that was going to get passed out of the legislature would definitely need Democratic support. Now, the other thing that I think is worth noting is that we also had new leadership in the governor's office, right? Former Clark County Sheriff, now Governor Joe Lombardo. And one of the things that I think is interesting about Lombardo is that he hasn't been in a role like this. He's used to being a sheriff. He's not used to being a politician. So I think we saw a lot of those dynamics playing out this session, which just for a recap goes lasts 120 days, usually (laughs) consists of a citizen legislature, meaning that there's teachers or doctors or attorneys or, or kind of the, just people whose whose full-time jobs are not being a lawmaker. Oh my God, we Sorry. had to stop recording because news is breaking. The governor is signing a bill. Doesn't he know we're recording a podcast? Okay, so now because we had new leadership and we had a new governor, and we had this Democrat control, what we can expect in this session, what we did see in this session was a lot of deal making and concessions and compromises, but also some standoffs saying, hey, we aren't going to pass this if you don't pass that. And so that's sort of setting us up before we launch into sort of discussion of what comes next. Yeah. And real quick, before we get into the the nitty gritty of the 120 day session, we just got finished with the second special session. A special session is a legislative convening that happens outside of the regular 120 days allotted for lawmaking in the state. And the special sessions, one was about the fact that they couldn't pass or come to a compromise about capital improvement projects. And so they met the day after the session ended, convened a special session and figured out how to get that passed in the shortest special session ever. It took about two hours to get the the CIP, the Capital Improvement Projects budget passed. And then we just finished a second special session and the governor literally, as we were recording this podcast, signed into Bill the deal with the A's to bring them to Las Vegas. That session lasted a little bit longer and we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But let's, let's, let's rewind a little bit and let's start with those budget bills. Those are the big bills that fund most things in the state. And there's there's five major budget bills. And so let's go over each of those and let's start with the K through 12 education budget bill. Jacob, take it away. Yeah. So the K-12 budget bill is by law, actually by the Constitution, required to be passed first before the legislature can pass any other budget. So here's the thing with the K-12 education budget. Right now, basically off of record revenues that the state got from taxes, they were looking at increasing state education funding by about $2.2 billion to about $11.2 billion over the course of two years. 
And so there are four other budget bills. There's the state worker pay, the Appropriations Act, the Authorization Act, and the Capital Improvement Program. And that's the one that led to a special session. And Sean, you're going to tell us about those four budget bills. Yeah, let me just kind of, you know, quickly run through the gauntlet here. So the Authorizations Act, I'll start with that because it's probably the least controversial of the the five budget bills. Basically what that one does is it authorizes a, a whole bunch of federal spending, the biggest chunk of that being Medicaid spending. So there's something like nine, ten billion dollars in federal Medicaid dollars that are authorized to be spent through this bill. Then the state worker pay bill, there you know, there was some consternation, I think, over this just in terms of the specifics. But coming into the session, it was very clear. Lombardo had said this, Democrats had said this, we need to pay state workers more. State worker wages have lagged behind the inflation rate for, you know, I think something like 30, 40 years now. So state workers kind of chronically underpaid, especially when compared to their counterparts in local government and in the private sector. And so eventually, I think after some disagreement, this kind of combined package comes together, which most state workers are getting a raise of either 10% or 12%. And then in the following year, an additional 4% raise one of the largest pay increases in history approved in a legislative session. And it's something that was a really big emphasis across the aisle this year. Then we get to the Appropriations Act. Basically, what what this bill does is it appropriates, I think, somewhere in the range of $7 billion plus in spending from the state's general fund. So this is basically your tax dollars at work, Nevada taxpayers. And, and the original version of this bill had actually been vetoed by Governor Joe Lombardo, Kind of a casualty of, I think, some of the the stalemates that we hinted at before in the podcast where, you know, basically Democrats are are looking for their priorities while Governor Joe Lombardo is looking for his priorities. So basically, he ends up vetoing the Appropriations Act to, to kind of force lawmakers' hand in moving forward some of his legislative priorities. And and I think we'll we'll get into that a little bit later in the podcast, but that ended up happening and and Democrats ended up reintroducing the same exact version of the bill he vetoed and Lombardo ended up signing it. And then finally, we get to the capital improvement program budget bill. And that was the one where, from what we understand and, and what the Senate Majority Leader indicated, Lombardo had agreed to sign this bill. But what happened is Senate Republicans said, we're not voting for this. And so the the vote to pass the bill failed in the final 35 minutes or so of the legislative session. And that's what ultimately forced the special session before, you know, in that special one Republican senator, Senator Scott Hammond, who is termed out, ended up flipping, kind of saying, I think we just needed to get this done and, and fund this portion of the budget. And so that's what happened in the special. And and that's kind of uh, the overview of, of where all the, the budget bills are at. So, Sean, you referenced the first special session about the, the, the capital improvement projects and the kind, of the, the kind of the confusion that led to the first special session. But there was also that second special session, which we talked about uh, at the beginning. The A's just got signed into law as we were speaking. Why was that a special session? Why couldn't that just happen during the regular legislative session? So I think, as Sean mentioned, there was a lot of deal making that was going on during the legislative session. Right. Bills were being held hostage. And the A's bill, as it was originally introduced, was one of those bills that ended up being held hostage. Assembly Speaker Steve Yeager said that they could not pass this bill if the budget bills were not passed. And as we noted, that last budget bill, the CIP bill, did not pass through and required a special session. So the A's bill died, as did another bill that would have massively expanded the state's film tax credits. And so ultimately, we we ended up with this with the outcome of the bill, which is that the 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 governor signed the bill. The A's are most likely coming to Las Vegas. There's no 100 percent guarantee that that's happening, but that's probably what we're going to see in the near future. Right. I mean, we don't have a crystal ball. We can't predict what the Major League Baseball Commission members are going to do or or necessarily say that everything is going to you know, wave a magic wand and just they're going to be here tomorrow. But I do think that it is looking like they will be in Las Vegas. There are still details that need to be hammered out, like agreements on the community benefit side. There's formalities around what is the stadium actually going to look like. All right. And well, with that, we're going to kind of get into a lightning round here. A lot of the episode is going to be going pretty quickly through a lot of different topics. And we're going to start with K-12 education. And that's all you, Jacob. So we're going to we're going to get we're going to start there. The first thing that I want to talk about is the restorative justice and school discipline bills. What's going on there? 
That's right. So really what we're talking about here are a pair of two bills, one backed by Democrats and specifically sponsored by Democrat Angie Taylor from Reno and one backed by Governor Joe Lombardo. And both would repeal big sections of this 2019 law that created a restorative justice regime for school discipline in Nevada schools. Basically, the intent of the bill back then was to address the school to prison pipeline, right, to make sure that kids aren't being punished by being suspended or expelled for sort of minor infractions. And then that sets them down a path that they can't recover from later down the line. The problem was, was it it created these limits on the way that administrations could expel or suspend students and later were interpreted very rigidly. And there is a lot of problems that people have pointed out with this, essentially that there wasn't enough funding, education or training for teachers and administrators on, on how to actually do all this stuff. This sort of it became a huge campaign issue. Joe Lombardo, obviously a cop, you know, made it safety a big issue and the thing was, is it was one of those political casualties of the sort of Democrat Lombardo split where Democrats didn't want to move Lombardo's bill. And then he threatened to veto theirs. And then they decided to keep his bill alive. And then they really trimmed both down. And by the end of the day, we had two bills that were extremely similar and frankly, did a lot of the same kind of stuff. But we saw that both Democrats and Lombardo said they were very complimentary. I should also mention both bills were signed as part of a package deal that guaranteed Lombardo signed the K-12 budget, which he had threatened to veto, but likely wouldn't veto again because it was a $2 billion. It was quite a deal when it happened. The next the next topic we're going to talk about with K-12 is the school choice and kind of the failure of this bill, actually. So AB 400 was the omnibus bill. Talk a little bit about that. That's right. So this is a huge, you know, 90 plus page bill from Governor Joe Lombardo that basically had all of his educational priorities in it, save the school safety stuff. And the big, big, big thing to take away from this is that Joe Lombardo wanted to vastly expand opportunity scholarships to help subsidize private school tuition for certain low and middle income students. It's basically the biggest school choice program left in the state right now. And so Joe Lombardo basically wanted to take the current level of funding, which is about six and a half million dollars a year, about 13 million dollars in the biennium. And that's sort of the tax credit availability. And he wanted to tie that to a percentage of the state education fund. So basically what that would mean is it would boost funding immediately to $50 million in the next biennium, and then it would ramp up to $500 million. Now, to be clear, none of this happened. This all got yanked out. There was a Democrat said they would not move on this. And as part of that budget deal I mentioned earlier, where those other bills got signed, they killed this. All right. And next, we've got read by three. It's pretty self-explanatory if you... Well, you'd think it'd be (laughs) self-explanatory. So basically, this was another part of AB 400. It was a major part of Governor Sandoval's original platform. When he was governor, he created this program where if you could not read by grade level at grade three, then you would be held back until you could read by grade level. It was just that simple. The problem was when that law was initially passed... The kick-in provision, essentially when kids would actually start being held back, wasn't until Governor Sisolak was in office. And basically, a bunch of people raised concerns that, okay, we're not quite sure that actually holding these students back would be helpful. We're about to hold thousands of students back. And so maybe we shouldn't implement this particular portion of it. Then during COVID, they basically got rid of a lot of the funding for early childhood literacy, and the program has been on life support ever since. What Lombardo's done is, again, part of this deal that got the K-12 budget signed, they added $140 million back for early childhood literacy education, and they added back that holdback provision with the caveat that it won't kick in until 2028. So we'll see. So, Jacob, what is going on with the school boards as well? There was a bill talking about school boards. That's right. So the governor had backed a plan to get appointed members on school boards in Nevada. This has been a long running debate, essentially. Are communities well served by actually electing school board members? Like, do these people, are they really the best people to handle the governance of K-12 school districts? And in Clark County in particular, it's the fifth largest school district in the, in the country. And I think there's been a lot of criticism of the school board, of the school district, of the school superintendent over whether or not these structures are actually the way we ought to be doing things. So this bill was designed to sort of create originally a mixed appointed elected board that was scaled way back. And the version we ultimately got was a board that has four non-voting members added only to the Clark County School District. And those members cannot do anything. They have no additional powers. That's it. All right. 
And then the final thing that I want to talk about with K-12 is that there was $250 million for teacher raises. That's right. And actually, you know, we've talked about the CIP budget and going to the special session and everything getting derailed. This was the bill that did it, technically speaking. So what this bill does is it creates a $250 million pot of money that serves as matching funds to get teachers raises. And this basically solves a conundrum for state lawmakers because, you know, all session we heard, you know, we have to pay teachers more, right? Teachers are underpaid for what they do, and we need to find a way to pay them more, especially because of inflation sort of post-COVID. And so lawmakers were sympathetic to that, and they had this giant pile of money, right? $2 billion for K-12, so they wanted to do that. Problem. Teacher salaries are bound by collective bargaining agreements, and so they can't technically just say, here's money for teacher raises. So what this money does is it guarantees that they will match whatever the school districts say they'll pay the teachers through an interim committee. So I mentioned the special session earlier. The reason we got here was because Republicans basically argue that they should add an additional $32 million for charter school teachers, and Democrats just didn't bite. The argument from Democrats is essentially that charter school teachers aren't, don't have to be licensed. Republicans would argue that there's a fractionally small number of charter school teachers who aren't licensed. That didn't persuade Democrats, and honestly, this is, this is what spiraled out of control in the last sort of hours and minutes of the regular session. All right, Jacob, you've been talking a lot. We're going to come back to you for higher education, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a break, and we're actually going to jump to healthcare now. Tabitha, you did a lot of reporting on healthcare during the session. One of the big t- discussions that was happening during the session, and it's also been happening nationwide even before the session, is abortion access. Right. So I think that one of the things we saw the governor sign that he had indicated on the campaign trail originally that he would not sign it, and then he went back on that, and we saw some flip-flopping on just his position on abortion in general. You can read all of our election abortion coverage for that. But the too long don't read of this is that he signed a bill that would protect out-of-state abortion seekers and providers of abortion care here in Nevada. So if you live in a state that banned abortion, you come to Nevada for an abortion, the Nevada state government will not assist a different state's government in prosecuting that individual or the doctor who helped them. And I think there's there's an argument to, to be made, I guess, kind of from his side of not necessarily expanding abortion access through that, but kind of saying, you know, we're not going to prosecute somebody for doing something that is legal in the state of Nevada. Nevada doesn't prosecute people who come from Utah and gamble in Nevada, even though gambling isn't legal in Utah. So, you know, it's just kind of a a similar thing there. Absolutely. And I mean, I will say that Governor Steve Sislak put this law into place via an executive order, and Lombardo never rescinded that executive order. So theoretically, the executive order was still in play when this legislation passed. This just solidified the legislation in the Nevada Revised Statutes. And another surprising thing that Governor Joe Lombardo signed was a couple trans health care bills. So there were some very significant pieces of LGBTQ legislation that came forward this session, but three that I've kind of identified was one that would have protected, similar to the bill that we just talked about, protected people seeking gender-affirming care from out of state, both the providers of that gender-affirming care and the seekers. And then the other one that we've been following that I flagged as pretty significant was another one that mandated health insurers, including Medicaid, cover all medically necessary gender-affirming treatments and eliminate exclusions that have historically been used to kind of avoid paying for treatments classified as cosmetic. And then the third piece of legislation was just gender-affirming care in prisons and and some requirements around that and protections for for non-binary transgender prisoners. What's interesting is that Lombardo had vetoed the measure that was protecting out-of-state gender-affirming care seekers and providers, but he signed Senate Bill 163, which was the medically necessary gender-affirming treatments requirements for, for insurers to cover. It's already kind of federal federal law and the state was already sued over this and they lost that lawsuit. So, like, it's actually a fiscally conservative, like, decision to sign that bill. Mm. So to wrap up the healthcare section, we have the hospital provider tax. Right. So the hospital provider tax, what it is, is that back, I can't remember, but there was a Department of Justice report that came out about kids in foster care, behavioral health just, I mean, some really, really horrendous things that were happening. And the state is basically told, you have to fix this. Well, the state needs money to fix that. So what they kind of came up with was this bill to implement what's called a hospital provider tax. 
Now, it's not a new tax, which Lombardo said he would absolutely not allow. It's an expansion of an existing tax, and the hospital providers would have to vote to tax themselves, essentially. And there's a kind of a complicated process that this goes around. But essentially, what this means is that more money will be flowing into the state for behavioral health services, for stuff like Medicaid um, coverage and those kinds of things, and will hopefully address some of the problems that were outlined in that Department of Justice report. All right. Well, moving on to a new topic, Sean, you are going to be telling us about criminal justice. There are a few bills about criminal justice. One that I actually spent a lot of time reporting on as well, which is fentanyl. It was looking at kind of criminalizing certain aspects of fentanyl more than it already is criminalized. Tell me how that bill turned right. out. Some, some great previous editions of the Indie Matters podcast all about this issue that you should also go check out. But just to kind of set the stage before I get to this bill, you know, in recent sessions with a Democratic governor and a Democratic legislature, uh, basically Democratic lawmakers have passed a lot of, you know, criminal justice reforms kind of aimed at reducing sentences, reducing the prison population, increasing access to diversion programs, you know, kind of more rehabilitation for for people in the carceral system. And and now as we we entered a session with a Republican governor who was formerly a sheriff, a lot of those types of reforms were now off the table. It's unlikely that Democrats would be able to kind of continue down that path. Um, and top of mind issue in this criminal justice world was fentanyl. We see it across the country. There, there's a crisis of opioid overdoses, and it's being driven by fentanyl. And so you know, both the governor, lawmakers on, on both sides of the aisle, they kind of were all in agreement. We need to do something to address this problem. But what we saw was kind of a mishmash of different legislation trying to tackle the issue. You know, let's let's take kind of a scale, for example, of the least stringent penalties possible for fentanyl to the most stringent. Governor Lombardo's crime legislation was at the most stringent. Then came a couple pieces of legislation from Senate Republicans and then a couple pieces of legislation from legislative Democrats and Attorney General Aaron Ford. And then at kind of, you know, the least stringent level of the scale was where we actually ended up with the law that was passed this session. So it was kind of, you know, reduced in terms of, of penalties and higher thresholds than in terms of criminalization and, and of trafficking than I think some folks had hoped for. Basically, right now, fentanyl trafficking is criminalized at, I believe, 100 grams or more in terms of possession. And so now this bill that was passed will set that low level trafficking threshold at 28 to 42 grams with kind of increasing penalties going up for 42 grams and, and higher. And that is, you know, a pretty significant jump from where the Democrat legislation first started of criminalizing low level trafficking at four grams and higher. So just stricter penalties, really, and, and trying to specifically target those who are distributing and selling fentanyl versus those using the drug. So, Sean, what else happened with criminal justice issues? There's kind of a lot going on, but kind of give us a brief top line here. Yeah, there, there certainly isn't enough time, I think, to dive into all the different issues here. And we're also going to have another section of the podcast just about firearm legislation specifically. But I think there was a lot of focus on on the prison system specifically. We saw legislation kind of trying to tackle fines and fees, communications between people who are incarcerated and their families, you know, trying to increase that access because I think as we've seen through the pandemic, it's been really difficult for for loved ones to be able to visit and contact their loved ones who are in prison. Also some changes to things like kind of the healthcare access in prisons, as well as some some limitations on solitary confinement. And quickly, you mentioned guns, Sean, and Tabitha, you did a lot of reporting on, on the gun bills. All of them got vetoed, which I think we should put up right away. So none of this is actually going to change anything. But it's interesting what did get vetoed. There were three major bills. The three major gun bills were one was no guns kind of coming near election sites. It started out, I believe, at 100 yards, and then they brought it down to about 100 feet. There was a bill that would have prohibited people who had committed a hate crime within the last 10 years from owning or purchasing a gun. And then there was a third bill that would have made it so that only people 21 and older could own a semi-automatic rifle. And that was a building off of an existing law for handguns that were only for people 21 and older. And so the governor, Joe Lombardo, vetoed all those bills, so none of them passed. 
Yeah. I mean, and and I think that one of the things that Lombardo made very, very clear on the campaign trail was that he was not going to sign any legislation that infringed on constitutional rights and in at least constitutional rights in terms of the gun gun access. And that was one of the things that he mentioned in his veto message specifically is he felt that these what he said is that these infringed on the Second Amendment rights, which he interpreted as as the right to bear arms. You know, and and I think that's just kind of what we would expect from a Republican governor. You know, there are some, I think, some vocal gun violence prevention advocates within the legislature, like Assemblywoman Sandra Hattigy, who sponsored two of these three bills. But, you know, for those folks, they just were not going to get these bills signed by the governor. All right. Well, we've had some time away from education, but it's time to come back to education. Jacob, welcome back. You're now talking about higher education, college, university. The first one that we're going to talk about is reducing the number of regents. What's going on with that bill? We're always hearing about this one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we have been hearing about it since 2017. If anyone's counting, I'm counting. This is basically a constitutional amendment from the 2021 session that, if passed, would remove the Board of Regents, which governs higher education in Nevada, from the state constitution and basically would treat it like any other state agency. The legislature has been trying to do this for a really long time. This actually goes back to 2016 and even before then. Basically, the legislature for a long time has accused former higher ed leaders of lying to them when we're talking about budget stuff, reformatting how the formula works, all kinds of things. Regents say... All those people who are responsible for all the things you're so mad about are no longer here. So why do we need to do this? This doesn't actually help higher ed. And then legislators will say, you know, there's bills we want to pass now that we can't because of this clause in the Constitution. So let's get rid of it. I should mention the reason I say this has been going on so long. There was a ballot measure in 2020 to do exactly this. It failed. People who behind it basically say we didn't have enough money to advertise. COVID made things difficult. People didn't understand what we were trying to do. But this time we fixed it. So in 2024, this will go to the ballot and we're going to find out if they fixed it. So a couple other top line things, and there's another one that has to do with the regents, but also things including tuition waivers and getting extra money for buildings. If you're looking at like the number of bills for higher ed, a bunch of them were tuition waivers. So we saw the sort of a cleanup bill for a Native American student fee waiver, essentially making it so that, you know, it makes it easier for students who grow up on reservations that straddle state lines to come to Nevada schools on the the sort of state in-state tuition. We saw some tuition waivers for the children of Purple Heart recipients. We saw the governor sign a bill. That would allow in-state tuition after a year of residency for students who are on DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or Temporary Protected Status, which was a big deal for immigration advocates. So that was like a lot of the bills. And then just sort of like other bills at the top of my head for higher ed, Nevada State College is going to get renamed Nevada State University. But probably one of the most major governance bills that actually did make it through this session is a bill that would reduce the size of the Board of Regents from 13 members to nine and actually reduce their terms from six years to four. Sort of the same reasons legislators argue they need that ballot measure, they they say they need this. Basically, 13 members is too unwieldy. It's bigger than county commissions. No one knows who these people are and they're serving for six whole years. You know, let's bring it down. We're not going to appoint regents, but we're going to make it easier for people to reelect them faster and the board will be smaller. And Jacob, what about higher education funding? Oh, Joey, higher education funding. So if K-12 got all the things, right, $2 billion for their budget, higher ed did get a lot of money, historically speaking. They're basically reset to 2019 levels. This erases a bunch of cuts from covid And basically coupled with a bunch of federal money that the higher ed got, this is the best position they've been in basically since the Great Recession. But it is not better than before the Great Recession. And so I think what a lot of higher education leaders are looking at now is, for instance, they proposed a lot of one-time money that would have been used to fund new capital projects. UNLV wants a new fine arts building. UNR wants a new life sciences building. There's a ton of projects that basically all these colleges want and did not get money for. And they're just not going to get for at least another two years. And one other education related thing before we move on from education, Tabitha is talking about the Oahe school. Tell me a little bit about this. Right. So, I mean, one of the major issues that sort of came out of nowhere and was a final big deal 
of the session was the funding for a new school on the Duck Valley Indian Reservation. Now we're talking about an existing school where there was bat feces dripping from the ceiling, inadequate heating conditions. It was also located over a hydrocarbon plume that has been shown to be potentially toxic. They're still kind of doing some research into that and, and assessing how whether or not it's caused a lot of cancer, but it's been linked to it. And so I think what the community asked for was funding for that new school. And they got it. And the bill was signed into law by Governor Joe Lombardo this week, which was pretty amazing. I think that a lot of folks weren't sure how that would go. There were a lot of were committed to addressing this issue. But as we've seen historically in indigenous communities, that there hasn't always been a lot of investment. All right, next on our long list of topics is the environment. Sean, you, along with our reporter Daniel Rothberg, covered a lot of the environmental bills. Let's start with the SNWA, the Southern Nevada Water Authority omnibus bill. Yeah, well, let me just start, Joey, by saying I mostly helped out with some energy coverage, but if you want the lowdown on what's happening with the environment, go subscribe to Indie Environment, read what Daniel is writing. And also our, our new environmental reporter, Amy Alonzo, is, is going to be taking over the helm soon and, and she's going to do great stuff. So anyways, the le- legislation, Southern Nevada Water Authority omnibus bill. Basically, this is all about cutting back on water use. You know, the water shortage, we're always hearing about it. But basically what this bill does is it allows the water authority to curtail excessive water use if there's a deep shortage declared on the Colorado River. And it also includes a program to help residents transition away from septic systems, basically, so we can all cut back on water use. All right. And then next, we've got a a failed measure, actually, on heat mitigation. This is to protect workers who are working in very warm climates. Yeah. And I'm sure I won't do this the the justice that, that Daniel could, but... Basically, there have been some efforts to expand heat mitigation, you know, understanding that Las Vegas is, you know, one of the, the hottest environments in the country and that Reno has, I think, been the, the fastest warming city in the country for, uh, you know, the past few decades or so, according to, to a new some new information from Axios recently published. And basically, this bill was about ensuring that businesses provide water and, and, and things like that to outdoor workers who are, are working in extreme heat. But it faced a lot of pushback from the business community, and ultimately it failed this session. And I'll just transition to kind of the last big thing here in this world. In, in energy, there was a lot of discussion this session about the long-term resource planning that major utilities go through, particularly the two biggest utilities in the state, NV Energy for electricity and Southwest Gas for natural gas. Already, NV Energy goes through this triennial it's called an integrated resource plan. It's a long-term plan that kind of shows how are you going to generate this energy and and distribute it to customers and make sure there's enough. And so there was one bill that is establishing that Southwest Gas is going to go th- go through the same three-year long-term resource planning process that is already in place for NV Energy. And then on the other side of that, the bill related to NV Energy was kind of adding a bit more scrutiny to their already existing process, making sure it's a bit more rigorous, but also understanding that the utility itself has kind of been pushing for more in-state generation. This kind of came with the executive order issued by Governor Joe Lombardo in March. It's really costly for the utility to buy electricity from the open regional market. And so what they want to do is build more solar plants and 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 power plants basically to generate more electricity in state which they say will ultimately reduce costs for customers in the long term our next topic is the economy everyone's favorite thing to talk about right oh the economy how's it doing well sean Tell me how the economy is doing about it. No, I'm kidding. Let's talk about tax credits. Yeah, well, this this has really been a, a session about tax credits, I think. And in terms of economic development, you know, you go back to early in the session when this didn't happen through legislation, but basically Tesla announced that they were going to be expanding their massive Nevada Gigafactory. And they were going through this process where, you know, they're going to be spending billions of dollars on, on construction for this new factory. 
and they qualified for $330 million in tax abatements. And so they're moving forward with, with this big project and it kind of sparked all these discussions about economic development and the use of tax credits. And then kind of amid all this, we get hit with these massive economic development deals late in the session. We had the A's come up. That's $180 million in tax credits from the state. And then there's also there was also this proposal to vastly expand the film industry in Nevada through kind of an unprecedented expansion of tax credits in the state. It would have been $190 million annually in tax credits for the film industry up from the current cap of 15. And I'll turn it over to, to Tabitha to talk a little bit more about what was happening there. I think one of the interesting things that happened about that is originally the bill focused on just some zones in Clark County, specifically in Southern Nevada. But what we saw was a push from Marvel movie star and Washoe County local, none other than Jeremy Renner. And so he actually came up to the legislature and was pushing pretty hard for lawmakers to include Northern Nevada as in, in the bill through an amendment. Now, Jacob might be able to tell you a little bit more, though, because he actually pitched a proposal with UNR as part of that. Yeah, I should say it's not just about the tax credits. There was this big educational and workforce component. And so basically what the bill proponents were saying was, we're not just going to give out all this money, but we're going to build two studios and we're going to use them to hire a bunch of local Nevada talent. We're going to train people to do all these film jobs in Las Vegas. Basically what Renner teamed up with UNR to say that we can do exactly this in Reno. And that was a really heavy push right at the end, which also included Mark Wahlberg, if anyone was watching. It got pretty wild. And really the funniest outcome is that it died. But Tabitha is going to grab the mic because... Because nothing is ever truly dead in the legislature, right? Nothing ever truly dies. Things come back like the A's came back. To kind of round this out, Joey, this is something that's been in the works for a long time. I mean, it was years of, you know, two two plus years of discussions with Roberta Lang, Senator Roberta Lang, who sponsored the bill with the this Bircher Development Group. They're, they're a Southern California-based developer who basically said, yeah, we want to spend a massive amount of money to build this film studio campus in Southern Nevada. And I, you know, it, it seems to be that the folks behind this are still interested in making it happen despite its failure this session. Also, another backer of this whole thing was Sony Pictures, one of the, the five major movie studios in the country. They were looking to spend a billion dollars in Southern Nevada on on production. I mean, that's, a, you know, a massive investment potentially from a major studio, but it, it all depends on whether this does move forward in a special session or in a, a future legislative session. All right. And we're going to do one more section before we decide to take a little break because we've been recording for a really long time. <laughs> That last section we're going to talk about is elections. Oh, there's a lot of election bills that happened. The Dems said that the governor's election bills were kind of a non-starter for them, and so a lot of those didn't happen. But let's talk about the focus on access, you know, specifically voting from jail and also expanding languages that are available. Right. I, you know, I think talking, Joey, I think talking with election advocates and voting rights advocates prior to the session they had kind of told me, you know, this was going to be a session about expanding access. That was the focus. In previous sessions, we've already seen major shifts in Nevada to expanding access. It was only in 2021 that Nevada permanently shifted to a universal mail ballot model, which is, you know, not common in the United States. Certainly, you know, it was a kind of a pandemic provision that is now here to stay. And so this session, some of the, the efforts we saw to expand that access revolved around language access including making sure that there are ballots available in Clark County in Chinese. Right now, the limited English proficiency Chinese-speaking population in Clark County falls just shy of the federal threshold for there to be a mandate on the county to provide election materials in that language. And so this bill is going, you know, it, it would basically ensure that the county does have to provide those materials in Chinese. We also saw a couple bills this session that were targeted at increasing access to voting from jails. Now, remember, somebody who who's convicted of a felony and has been stripped of their voting rights is sent to prison. Somebody who has been convicted of a, of a misdemeanor or who is still awaiting trial and has not yet been proven guilty would be in jail. And so they have not lost their access to vote. But, you know, until these laws have been passed and until they're implemented, it is difficult for them to actually vote in jail just because 
you know, there's there's not really a clear system in place for them to be able to do so. But again, those are, are, are individuals who still have their right to vote. So, Jacob, the Secretary of State had a bill on poll worker safety. Yeah, that's right. So Democratic Secretary of State Cisco Aguilar, one of his big campaign promises was to sort of beef up laws protecting election workers. And a lot of this is an outgrowth of 2020, right? The big lie, the sort of harassment of election workers by, frankly, conspiracy theorists, right? And people threatening them, you know, either in person or over the phone became a serious issue such that a lot of election workers were actually leaving in droves in 2022. If you want to read more about that, check out Sean Galanka's writing about this. But it was a serious problem. And so what they did, and the governor has signed this bill already, is they basically made it a felony to threaten an election worker. And this matters insofar as the state could not charge people for doing this, but the feds could. And we actually saw a federal case fail against a Nevada man who threatened an election worker. Those charges didn't stick. And so now what it would do is that same kind of crime would now be open to state charges instead. And Jacob, you know, speaking about things that can be federally charged and and not charged in the state and also stemming from issues from the 2020 election, there was a Democrat-backed effort this year to explicitly criminalize fake elector schemes. Basically, this is what we saw in 2020 when six Nevada Republicans attempted to pledge the state's electoral votes to Donald Trump, despite him losing the election, the vote to Joe Biden in Nevada. And so this would basically, this bill would have criminalized it, and it even got support from Attorney General Aaron Ford, who said that with those 2020 fake electors, the current state laws, just the AG's office could not find a way to prosecute them under the state's existing laws. However, the bill that was attempting to criminalize fake electors was vetoed by Joe Lombardo. I think there were a lot of concerns, not only from Republicans, but even from some progressive criminal justice folks who said the penalties, the proposed penalties under the bill were just too severe. I mean, there were the 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 prison time was even greater than than that for certain violent crimes. And so I think there was some consternation over that. And and with that, we are going to go eat dinner and it is going to be many hours before we reconvene to talk about the rest of the things that happened in the session, including housing and any kind of big takeaways and signatures that didn't happen and vetoes. But for you listeners, it will be mere moments. So with the magic of podcast editing, here we go. Well, we all had a lovely dinner and we've gotten some rest and now it's a few days later, but with the magic of editing, you have, it's only been a few moments for you listeners. Welcome back, Tabitha, Jacob, and Sean. Tabs, we're going to hop into the next part of what we've been discussing, which is housing, which also ties into kind of one of our last topics, which is also vetoes. So go ahead and go over housing here. Sure. So I think that one of the things that we saw this session were a lot of housing bills, a lot aimed at tenants' rights, a couple measures looking to change the state's unique summary rapid eviction process. And there was also some efforts to increase tenant fee transparency. Now, all of those that passed out of the legislature were vetoed by Governor Joe Lombardo. And I think that there were a lot of, you know, a lot of advocates were kind of upset about it because this marks the furthest some of these efforts have ever gone, right? In the past, we've seen efforts to In the past, we've seen efforts to abolish summary evictions outright, which have not succeeded. And this is the furthest that that some of these measures have made it. And so, like you said, vetoed. And this was actually the most vetoes ever done by a governor, which it it kind of makes sense, right? We have a Republican governor and a Democratic-controlled legislature, so they're going to be giving him a lot of bills that he's not necessarily going to agree on. Let's talk about some of those major vetoes. Let's let's go ahead and start with you, Tab. So you mentioned the, the, the housing bills, but what else really stuck out to you? Right. We saw, I mean, funding for universal free school lunch was vetoed, collective bargaining for higher education employees. There was also an attempt to ban forever chemicals, also known as PFAS, that the governor vetoed. So a lot of measures. And it was interesting because to do a little bit of a sidebar, Joey, because we were actually at the Basque Fry Festival and Republicans were touting this wide number of vetoes as Lombardo sort of protecting the state from Democrats 
willy-nilly expanding certain things or or pushing this sort of what what was referred to at that event as a leftist agenda. So I think that we're actually going to, as we approach the campaign season, what's going to be interesting is to see how Democrats spin this and how Republicans spin this and the way that they're going to use it in what will be a very important series of races to determine control of the Senate and the Assembly and specifically the Democratic majority. Because right now, Democrats are one short, as we've said, of this supermajority in the Senate. And if they can gain one more seat, then they can override a lot of these vetoes, although that's not typically common, and or they can pass legislation without worrying about the governor vetoing it. And I guess we should talk about that. Were any of the vetoes overturned because they they did need that one Republican to join them? Right. So we didn't see any vetoes overturned during the legislative session, but a lot of these vetoes are going to return because he vetoed them after the sessions. They'll come back in the next legislative session. So that's 2025. So essentially what happens is at the beginning of the session, they have an opportunity to override those vetoes. But like I said, overriding of vetoes is not very common. I'll just quickly add to that, that that's why, you know, these state legislative races are going to matter a lot in 2024 because, you know, overriding any vetoes is basically going to hinge on Democrats picking up one seat in the Senate. But also, if Republicans manage to win back, you know, any of those 28 seats held by Democrats in the assembly, they can kind of flip the math and prevent supermajorities in both chambers that way. And just to put a little bit of extra context on the sort of like to override or not override. So they didn't actually vote to override any vetoes, but there are at least four bills where the language that was vetoed by Lombardo got stuck somewhere else. So two bills that got stuck back into the A's stadium bill. There was a bill that was vetoed that would have banned certain cooling agents and building cooling systems, essentially, or environmentally harmful. And basically, there was like one wording problem in that bill that Lombardo took issue with. So at the very last minute, they stuck it in another bill. There was also a bill that would have like shifted around who was responsible for this like committee. Is it the secretary of state? Is it the lieutenant governor? Lombardo vetoed that, but oh, it got stuck into a bill that he eventually signed. So it's like overriding a veto is not the only way to get the sausage made, as it were. And there, there's a, a fifth one there. Actually, they uh, Governor Lombardo vetoed the Appropriations Act, one of the five major budget bills, and Democratic lawmakers reintroduced the same exact version of that bill, and he signed it as part of the the whole budget deal we've been talking about. All right. Well, before we wrap up the veto section, are there any other vetoes, Jacob or Sean, that you guys noticed? Jacob, I know you were really excited about that train bill. You want to talk about that real quick? Well, just as a point of interest, I guess, because it was after the derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, where obviously there were a ton of chemicals spilled. They had to blow up the train. It was a huge environmental catastrophe for everyone involved. And so after that, in Nevada, there was this push to basically implement a cap on the length of trains so that trains couldn't be more than 7,500 feet long. It's a mile and a half-ish. Right now, trains can be upwards of three miles long. That's about the average is what the sort of train unions said. But the seminal law that governs train safety wasn't passed until the 70s. So it's an open legal question, but it was a legal question the Lombardo administration wasn't willing to entertain. So they vetoed that. Another veto that I think is just worth noting was the medical aid in dying. And I don't think we've talked about that yet, but it was, I mean, for me watching it, it was interesting because we've seen this come up. This was the fifth legislative session that this legislation was introduced. And if you're unfamiliar with it, essentially what medical aid in dying is, is that it's basically terminally ill patients who have less than six months to live would be able to request medicine to aid in the dying process. And so And there's a bunch of regulations and rules around it, but this legislation would have legalized it in Nevada. Specifically, it's legal in other states famously. I mean, Oregon, I think, was the first state to pass it. But the bill passed out of the Senate and out of the Assembly, which is the furthest it's ever made it. But as soon as but when it made it to the governor's office, Governor Joe Lombardo became the first governor in the country to veto this legislation that would have passed out via the legislative process. So I just think that that was something that is very interesting to watch that bill sort of make its way through the different chambers. There were a lot of arguments related to it about, you know, what is an person's ability to choose how they die versus what is the morality and the legality and what are the kind of conversations around it. It's even more interesting to me in a state that has some of this libertarian streak. All right. And before we get to the big takeaways, what are also some major sign bills that we haven't talked about? We've gone over a lot of topics, but, you know, not everything falls under those topics. So, Jacob, why don't you start? 
Yeah, well, one thing I wanted to bring up because it became such kind of a lightning rod at the end of the session are the Christmas tree bills. These are basically a pair of bills that distribute a bunch of money to a bunch of third party organizations. It could be all kinds of things. It is frequently criticized as pork, right? In the traditional sense, it's just sort of legislators giving money to people who might have benefited their campaign or whatever. And it really got a lot of attention from Republicans at the end because Democrats controlled what was in uh, the, the Christmas tree bills. But there's sort of like a lot of sort of, you know, content neutral, we'll say, beneficiaries of these bills. And so Lombardo ended up signing both, despite, I think, the criticism from his own party of those two bills. All right. And with that, let's let's talk about those takeaways, you know, kind of those big overarching, you know, what was the thesis of this session? How will this session be remembered for you guys? Big budget. It's only going to get bigger from here, I think, you know, although there, there were concerns throughout the session about the fiscal responsibility of, of spending, Nevada tax revenues have been going bonkers, to, to say the least. Sales tax revenue, gaming tax revenue, they have really exceeded all expectations coming out of the pandemic. And because of that, lawmakers this session had the most amount of money they've ever had to spend on things like education and, and more. And so, you know, we just we saw and I think Jacob can really speak to what we saw with the education funding, but they passed the largest education budget in state history, the largest raises for state employees in decades. And so really driven by this extra money they were able to, to, to do a lot with that money. They also, you know, going along with something that, that the governor had, had pushed for, ultimately the two sides, Democratic leaders and Lombardo, settled on a compromise of raising the state's rainy day fund, which is like an emergency savings account used to, to fund the government in, in emergency periods like the COVID-19 pandemic. They raised the cap on that to basically put more state funds into savings and and kind of have that there in case there is another fiscal emergency. And so, yeah, that was really, I think, kind of an o- overarching thing with the session was just how much money was on the table and the, the considerations of that, especially, I think, in the minds of, of Senate Republicans, there was a lot of consideration of what are we putting taxpayers on the hook for in terms of recurring programs, you know, kind of making sure that they're balancing recurring expenses with one-time expenses because there was a lot of leftover money from the previous biennium as well. And so we'll kind of look to see how that plays out going forward of whether, you know, these tax revenues can sustain themselves at this level or if the state is going to have to to cut anything back. Yeah. And to just sort of follow on, I think what Sean said, there was, I think, a heightened focus on education because of all the extra money they had. And everyone really wanted to take credit for that extra money. It was going to increase by $2.2 billion this cycle. And so that's what they're touting. So everyone wants to say that they put this money in, but I think everyone is also terrified that it might go terribly wrong. And so they've tried to put up guardrails. They've tried to say, okay, you have to report, this is how exactly you're spending the money. You have to tell us what's happening. Because if we look at it from the macro view, right? A couple of years ago, they put together the Commission on School Funding to basically see all right, if we really want to fully fund education in Nevada, what does that look like? What, what will it take? And basically the commission said, we're going to need to spend you know, somewhere between 4 and $5 billion over the next 10 years. And in order to do that, we're probably going to need to raise property taxes and sales taxes significantly. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And yet here we are in 2023, and we have leapfrogged that timeline that they set down by five years by essentially putting $2 billion in a single go and we've done it without raising taxes, right? What legislators are thinking now is, okay, maybe we can simply wait and see if tax revenues keep going gangbusters, like Sean said, maybe we can find fully fund education at the levels that we we aspire to. I think that, you know, when we're talking about this session, we also have to talk about growing pains. We saw a new governor who has historically never held a position like this, right? He was Clark County Sheriff. I think that there, there were some communication things between the two. We saw a first time assembly speaker kind of coming into his role and learning how that kind of worked. Obviously, the Senate majority leader has been in this position before, but this was her second time. It was a kind of a new leadership team, a new way of sort of approaching bills. It was the first time in a while that we've seen this kind of split government, right? You had the Republican governor and the democratically controlled legislature and watching how they kind of 
worked around each other. And, you know, you, we talked about the negotiations, the conversations, the stalemates, all of that, I think, is product of this sort of new process for folks underneath Governor Steve Sisolak. It was a Democrat. The legislature was Democrat controlled. Most of the constitutional officers were were Democrats in terms of the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, the treasurer at the time. So I think this was a, a fascinating process to watch and kind of be there for. It's also noteworthy that, you know, at the Basque Fry this weekend, Lieutenant Governor Stavros Anthony got up and said, this was the most disorganized session I've ever seen. Well, this is coming from somebody who is theoretically helping guide the Senate and is the first time that he's actually seen this legislative process in hand. And again, as we're looking to this upcoming election, I think that this is going to be interesting how people play it off and the way that narratives around it work and who gave what and who didn't budge on certain issues and what does that mean for voters? And so all of that, that narrative that we watched unfold through this session is going to come out in the election cycle. I think looking at sort of the chaos, especially at the end of this session, we had a lot of like history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? So Lombardo vetoed the a part of the budget for the first time since 2011, right? Something that happened again in 2009, both instances, right, in which Republican governors might have been feuding with Democrats in the legislature. But I also think in particular, something we need to look at in this session versus past sessions and the degree to which it was more chaotic than maybe it was in the past was term limits. Term limits have existed in Nevada since the 90s, but really they're finally starting to kick in where any sort of institutional knowledge that might have existed in the last decade basically got wiped out in the last few years. And so when we look at like all of these people are new, yeah, they are very new. And so it's always a joke, right? Who's landed the plane before? Almost no one in that building. So that if we're looking at sort of like what led us here, the most experienced people in that building right now are all the lobbyists. And so that is really driving, I think, the environment that, you know, if we're going to like describe the 2023 session, I think you can't describe it without that. Yeah. And I'll just add, I think there were a lot of frustrations with the process. I mean, as the, the session came to a close, we saw the assembly speaker tweeting about how you know, this current 120 days every other year is, is just not the way to go about running a state in terms of policy. You know, I, Nevada has one of the weakest legislative branches in the country. And that's simply, I think, you know, just comes from the format of, of how the legislature convenes. You know, it's, it's every other year it's capped at 120 days constitutionally. And so for however many days that is outside of that 500 plus every two years that they're, they're not in session, these are people that you know, they, they're just kind of going back to their their normal lives as citizens of the state. I mean, there are interim committees, but they're not setting policy in those committees. And so outside of these sessions, there are all these elected officials who are now kind of losing power over, you know, what is happening with the policy and the budget of the state. But even in even though, you know, Speaker Yeager pointed that out, this this complaint about the 120 days being too short is has been going on for a very long time, right? There's been a lot of frustration. There have been rumblings of how do we make this process more long lived? How do we make it more accessible? Because, yes, we have a citizen legislature, but who has the time to take off 120 days in the middle of like a work situation? Right. I mean, we see a lot of lawyers you see, you know, there's certain professions that I think would have a very difficult time serving in the legislature. And so it's even a question of not just, you know, how effective is this, but also how equitable is it if we really want to try and get broad based representation from all sorts of different sectors and industries in terms of the lawmakers who represent the people. Also, I, I know we did talk about this kind of at the top of the pod, but I'd be remiss not to say this will be remembered as a session potentially that brought Major League Baseball to Southern Nevada. I mean, it's going to depend, obviously, on what the A's path forward is to actually relocating. But if it happens, then, you know, kind of going forward, I think people are going to look back on this period just as, as the session or really the special session anyways, that that brought a professional baseball team to Las Vegas. Right. No one really remembered those budget fights from 2011 and 2009. It's possible that no one remembers the budget fight from this year either. People will remember a baseball stadium. Well, 
I think that we've gone over a lot today and I hopefully the listeners, you know, got a lot out of this. There is a ton of content we recorded for like two hours and you're only getting about an hour of this or less. So make sure to follow all of our coverage on the NevadaIndependent.com. We are a nonprofit. So if you are so inclined, donate to us so we can keep doing reporting like this. And we will be following all of the kind of the, the, the fallout and changes of, of everything that happened post session here. And enjoy your summer. We'll have a lot of fun content on the podcast coming out soon. And with that, Sean, Jacob, and Tabitha, for the last time as the 82nd legislative team, thank you so much for covering this. Thanks, Joey. And stay tuned for election season. Coming soon. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. If you want to support the show, you can leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at the Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and myself. I've been your host, Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>